we do here is not earthly. It is heavenly. It is supernatural. This is no ordinary book. This is not a newspaper or a novel or a resource. This is the divinely inspired word of God. And I believe that there is power in these words and there is power in reading them and seeing them that they have come from God to you. And so if you have a copy of God's word with you, we're going to read the entire chapter of Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And Jonah and the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I'd do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, when it came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as I stand in this pulpit today to deliver your word, I am reminded that I am powerless, that I have nothing to offer. That worse than being powerless, I'm infectious. I carry a viral disease of sin that contaminates everything in life. And that today, Lord, if it is not you working through me, then the work will not be done. I don't claim my own power or prowess. I claim your promise that you made me an able minister of your word, that you've commissioned me and sanctioned me to be a preacher of your word. And I pray that today, Lord, I would not hinder your word in any way, but that it might freely flow through my faculties and be delivered to the people that you have it for today. Lord, all glory and honor goes to you. And I pray and ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 4 contains two insights for us as the story comes back full circle, back to the main theme of the book. 
as we think about where we are, we've been in the book of Jonah for four weeks now, and, uh, and this is our last installment. Last week, we saw that Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh, and he preaches, and the whole city repents and believes in God. And arguably, Jonah chapter 3 records the greatest visible results of any of the Old Testament prophets. Just catalog it with me for a moment. Did Elijah ever go to a foreign city and see the entire city repent? He didn't even see that in his own country. He lived under the reign of wicked King Ahab and Jezebel and had to face off against the prophets of Baal. Think about Isaiah, that tremendous prophet in scripture who stood and boldly proclaimed the judgment of God was coming and yet his city and his country does not repent. Jeremiah the weeping prophet sees the decimation of Jerusalem and writes a book of lament because they would not heed the message. Daniel in all of his glory and honor and promotion to be in second place to the king still never saw the visible results that Jonah saw from one sermon that he preached in Nineveh. And ironically, it is accomplished through a prophet who is not wholehearted. Jonah did not want the revival of Nineveh, as we can see. Jonah went obediently, but Jonah went somewhat grudgingly. And you can better believe that he did not add any sugar to the mix when he proclaimed that the judgment of God was coming. And it's a testimony to the fact that the power is in the Word. It was the Word of God and not the prophet of God who brought those Results. While Jonah is present in body, his heart is not in it. And it's just a reminder to me that, that too often that happens to us as Christians going along in this Christian life that, that we show up but our heart's not in it. How many Sundays have we tracked where we showed up and we were there for Sunday school, we were there for church, but our, our heart wasn't in it, our mind was somewhere else. We didn't get what God had for us there. You know what this goes to show you? It goes to show you that fruitfulness does not always indicate nearness. Fruitfulness does not always indicate nearness. Just as Jonah has fruitfulness in his ministry, he does not have nearness to God at this point. And the same can be said of ministries and people down through the ages. There have been people who had fruitful ministries, but turns out we're not as near to God as they could have been or should have been. However, I do want to give credit where credit is due. I, I don't want to just have a negative view of Jonah and, and be the Monday morning quarterback, the armchair quarterback, and critique everything that Jonah did. I want to give him credit because it does appear that Jonah has made some progress from the first time we met him in chapter 1 to where we find him in chapter 4, instead of running away and refusing to talk to God, at least this time he stays and he prays. Right? There's some progress. First time, pew, he is out of there. He's getting as far away from God as he can, and he refuses to pray until he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. This time he stays, and he does pray, even if it is a misguided prayer. It is improvement. There is some movement that God is accomplishing in the life of Jonah. It also shows us that Jonah is still struggling. 
He's still struggling with that internal conflict of drawing near to God or being drawn away from God. He is a prophet of God. He's a child of Abraham. He is a covenant uh, holder with Israel. But yet there is something that is pulling him away from where God wants him to be. I was reminded as I was preparing this week about something that happened when Melissa and I were newlyweds. We were early married and before we had kids, we thought it was a good idea to get a dog. And so we, we went to the pound and we rescued a dog. And uh, we named that dog Scout. And uh, we got Scout as a pup. And we, we just showered that dog with love and attention. And that was a good dog. Maybe the best dog we've ever had was, was old Scout. And, and so, you know, we, we gave her all of our attention because we didn't have any children. And so she was pretty spoiled. And uh, after she had gotten grown, Melissa and I were going out of town uh, for a few days. And, and we lived in Knoxville and didn't have any family around. And so I needed to take Scout to the kennel. Melissa was at work. I had gotten out of uh, class. And so I was taking Scout to go uh, to, uh, to the kennel. And so we, we get into the car, and in that day, I was driving an old Cutlass Supreme. Y'all remember those? I mean, it wasn't the old square Cutlass Supreme. It was kind of the rounded Cutlass Supreme, but it, had, it was a two-door, and the doors were like five or six feet long, right? The hinges always wore out, and you kind of had to lift them up to, to get them to latch. And so that's what I'm in. I'm in this old Cutlass Supreme, and Scout gets in, and, and so we're sitting there and I roll down the window and so Scout wants to get on my lap and stick her head out the window and so I I move her to the back seat and here we are driving down the road and uh, I'm here and Scout's head is nearly beside of mine she has her head out the window I mean she is lapping up the air she is excited about being with me and going with me she doesn't know where we're going yet so she's still happy on this journey. Well, we lived on a back road, and so I've got the window down, but we need to get on to the interstate, and I don't want Scout's head out the window and the wind blowing in, so I need to roll up the window, but Scout's not ready to give up her window space yet. And so Scout's in the back seat behind me, and I'm fumbling around trying to find the leash that I kept on her, and I get a hold of the leash, and I'm keeping one hand on the wheel uh, per, you know, law, and, and, I, and, and I'm getting up to highway speed, and I'm having a tug of war with this dog because she's resisting and does not want to move away from the window. And so I'm stretched about as far as I can, but it looks like I have Scout clear, and I do break code, and I start steering with my knee for a moment, when I go to roll up the window, uh, it did have power windows, and as soon as I get that window rolled up, I hear the worst yelp I've ever heard in my life. And I look in the rearview mirror, because eyes are on the road, and I see half a scout's ear <laughs> flapping in the wind on the outside of the window car. Now, it is still attached. That's why she is yelping. It, it did not sever the ear or anything like that. 
So I immediately hit the button to roll down the window and Scout could not get her head out fast enough from that. No leash was needed. And, and instead of sitting in the front seat beside of me or even in the back seat behind me, she goes to the furthest corner of the back seat away from me as if to say, if that's how you're going to treat me, I don't want, any, I don't want to be near you right now. And that's how I picture Jonah with God in Jonah chapter 4. Not that God's accidentally rolled up Jonah's ear in a window, but that in reaction to what God has done, Jonah has withdrawn. I mean, he's still in the car, but it's as if he is saying, if that's how you're going to treat me, I don't want to be near you right now. Isn't that a sad commentary, but accurate on where Jonah is at in Jonah chapter 4? Jonah is in his feelings. Have you ever gotten in your feelings? Yeah, we get into our feelings sometimes. Notice verse 1, Jonah is, is uh, exceedingly displeased and very angry. I mean, he is in his feelings all the way. He is upset in fact, he is so upset that it prompts the question from God, do you do good to be angry, Jonah? God asked Jonah about his anger in verse 1 and in verse 9. And so, uh, verse 4, I mean, and in verse 9. And so, here we find that Jonah's in his feelings and God has to address that and Jonah angrily responds in verse 9, Yeah, I do well to be angry. I want to be angry unto death. And so that's how far into his feelings he is. And so I want to give you some insight into the heart of Jonah. That's what we find in verses 1 through 5. We, we ask, what is it, Jonah's problem? What is your problem, Jonah? I mean, you already ran. God brought you back in the most supernatural way, recorded in the Bible. You said a great prayer from the belly of the whale. You are compliant. You are obedient. You go to Nineveh. You preach one sermon, and the whole city gets saved. You have the greatest visible results of any prophet known in Israel's history, and you're sitting over here pouting on the side of the hill outside the city. What is your problem, man? And I would say it is the same as ours. Self. Self. That four-letter little word, self. Self is the perpetual problem of all mankind. And if you haven't diagnosed yourself with that yet, you haven't been paying attention. It is the greatest obstacle to overcome in drawing near to God. You say, what is the single greatest obstacle to overcome in drawing near to God? Is it, is it the devil? Is it all of the devil's pitfalls? Is it all of the temptations in the world? Is it all of the pleasures? No, it is self. It is this old man, this old woman inside of us that was tainted by the fall into sin and we have become pathologically selfish and self-centered. You might say, well, I give and I give and I give. And I would say, just hold on a minute. Let's look in the mirror of God's Word and let's look at where Jonah's at. And let's see if we see any reflection of ourselves. 
You know, the Apostle Paul accurately described this problem in Romans chapter 7. You remember that great chapter, verses 15 through 25, and he says, You know what? The things that I would do, those are the things that I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, those are the things that I do. And then he goes on to say, For in me... And here's Paul speaking 25 years after he's gotten saved. He's already written part of the New Testament. He says, for in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find out. He says, I've got the desire to do it. I just don't always have the capacity to follow through on doing the good. He concludes that chapter by saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? That's the problem. That's the problem that every one of us has. And even after we get saved and the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us, it comes to live inside of this body of flesh. This flesh did not get saved. This flesh is going to the ground. God's going to give us a replacement body when we get to heaven to match the Spirit. But as long as we are on earth, we're going to live in this place of tension where the Spirit is pulling one way and the flesh is pulling the other. And we've either got to let God lead or we are going to lead and by the way, the default setting, the default setting is that you and I take the leadership in our lives every day. Every night it seems to reset when you go to sleep. I don't care how dedicated you are today. I don't care how much prayer you pray today. When you get up in the morning, yourself will want to take the leading step. Paul says that's the problem. But thankfully, the Apostle Paul also provides the solution. He said we must die to self. Remember the entire chapter, Romans chapter 6, that we are to reckon or count that ourselves be dead indeed unto sin, crucified. He said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I live in the flesh is by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians, Paul said, I die daily. What is he talking about? He's talking about dying to the desire of the flesh dying to self our Lord Jesus Christ said this when he was on his earthly ministry he said we must deny self take up our cross daily to follow him so I'm telling you some insight into Jonah's heart why is Jonah acting like this it's because Jonah has a self problem and he is even though he is self-focused or self-centered, he is not very self-aware. In fact, a little more insight into Jonah's heart is that Jonah is a hypocrite. Jonah's hypocritical. Notice verse 2. Jonah finally reveals the great secret as to why he ran. You know, we don't really know why he ran. Uh, I, I told you when we were in chapter 1, but it was because I had read chapter 4. And so if you're just reading the story of Jonah, you're like, well, why is this guy running away from God? What did God ever do to him? Why doesn't he want to go to Nineveh? And it isn't until chapter 4, verse 2, where Jonah actually explains and admits why he didn't want to go. He prayed unto the Lord, and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repentest thou of the evil. By the way, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, you might want to circle all the personal pronouns that you find in verses 2 and 3. Ten 
personal pronouns. I, me, my. I, me, my. I, me, my. Well, hold on, man. I thought prayer was supposed to be about God. I thought prayer was a form of worship. I didn't think prayer was therapy where I talk about myself the whole time. You see, Jonah has this self-problem, and Jonah's a hypocrite. Because what verse 2 ought to be is that it ought to be a psalm of praise. Praising the attributes of God. I praise you, God, because you're gracious. I praise you, God, because you're merciful. I praise you, God, because you're slow to anger. I praise you, God, because you're of great kindness. I praise you, God, because you do turn and don't execute the judgment that you are going to execute. Instead, Jonah turns it into an accusation. Jonah turns it into a criticism. God, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because I know you're gracious and merciful and kind and and that you'd probably change your mind about destroying those Ninevites. Do you know how hypocritical this is? You want to know how hypocritical this is? Let me show you something. Did you read those words? You got them fixed in your mind? Gracious, merciful, uh, slow to anger, kind. Would you look at Joel, back a a couple of pages in your Bible, Joel chapter 2. Joel records the exact same words that Jonah uses in Jonah chapter 4, but there's an entirely different tone to them. Joel, God is speaking through the prophet to the people of Israel. And it says, Therefore also, in verse 12, Joel 2, 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even unto me with all your heart, and with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. He's speaking to his people And rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. This is a promise to Israel. Hey, Israel, if you'll turn, if you'll repent, if you'll be sorrowful over your sin, God is gracious, God is merciful, God is slow to anger, God is kind and God will forgive you. Exact same words. Entirely different attitude. In fact, those words are used another time. We won't take the time to go there, but you can find them in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 through 19. And what Nehemiah is acknowledging is that as a people coming back to God, he's saying, God, we want to even be a nation if you weren't gracious, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness. Because we have failed you and sinned against you and rebelled against you since the very day that you brought us out of Egypt. And so in the mouth of others, these words are a praise. In the mouth of Jonah, they're a criticism. Such hypocrisy. Because because Jonah wants God to show that to him and his people. Jonah wants the grace. Jonah wants the mercy. Jonah wants the kindness. Jonah wants the forgiveness. He wants that for him, and he wants it for Israel. But he does not want the same thing for the Ninevites. That's hypocrisy. How many of us are guilty of the same hypocrisy? That we've gotten saved, God's worked in our lives, and we've made a little bit of progress, and all of a sudden we're looking around at other people saying, you know what, God ought to judge them. I don't know why God doesn't strike them. I don't know why God blesses them, and they're doing what they're doing and all of that. You know what it is? It is this selfishness where we don't see ourselves as bad as we see other people. And the truth of Scripture is that we're all depraved. Utter depravity of mankind. You and I are thoroughly sinful. As Paul said, in me, in my flesh, there is no good thing. The same potential to sin 
that lives within Charlie Manson lives inside of Justin Hall. And it is only by God's grace that I didn't act upon the same impulses. And so until we get over self and we start seeing ourselves clearly, we're going to find that we're in the same struggle as Jonah. But in the second half of the chapter, we get insights into the heart of Jehovah. And first we get insights into the heart of Jonah, now we get insights into the heart of Jonah. Notice, verse 6, the Lord God prepared a gourd. It's not just God's title. It's not just God prepared a gourd. In the Hebrew, that's Elohim. It is a title. It is the title of God. It's not his name. But in the Hebrew, that word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is Jehovah. It is the personal name of God. It's no accident that in this verse, in this transition in the chapter, that it says the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, prepared a gourd. You see, this, this sets a tender tone for how God is going to deal with Jonah. God is going to deal with Jonah like a father deals with a son, a, a misguided son, a disobedient son. Yes, he is going to take corrective measures, but those corrective measures are in love and for their goodness. He is not going to deal with Jonah as an adversary. He's going to deal with him as a son. And so what does God do? God prepares a gourd, and then God prepares a worm, and God prepares a vehement wind. Each of these indicate providential action from God. Did you notice it there? In verse 6, the Lord God prepared a gourd. Verse 7, but God prepared a worm. Verse 8, God prepared a vehement east wind. That is a direct providential action from God where God is specifically intervening in one little man's life. The picture here, it's not a city. Not a nation. One dude sitting on the hill outside of Nineveh. And God goes to all this trouble to prepare a gourd, to prepare a worm, to prepare a wind. It is providential action from God specifically for Jonah. But to what purpose? Let me read to you from the book Man Overboard. Arthur, author Sinclair Ferguson observes four times... The verb prepared is used of God. He prepared the fish in chapter 1, verse 17. He prepared the plant in chapter 4, verse 6. He prepared the worm in 4, 7. He prepared the wind in 4, 8. These were all providences of God by which he intended to draw Jonah back into fellowship with himself. That's an insight into the heart of God. God took direct action to draw Jonah back to himself. That's what the fish is about. That's what the gourd is about. That's what the worm is about. If you remember, I pointed this out uh, when we were in chapter 1 about the great fish and, and that it simply reinforces it here in chapter 4. And that is God's not indifferent about your distance from him even though you might be indifferent about it. 
God wasn't indifferent that Jonah took off running away from him and hopped on a ship in the Mediterranean going to Tarshish. God prepares a great fish to go fetch him and bring him back. Why? Because God's not indifferent to his children's distance from them. And even though God's got Jonah uh, in the proximity that he wants him to be geographically, he is there at Nineveh, Jonah is not there spiritually where he wants him to be. And so God takes further yet similar action to draw Jonah back to himself. God prepared a well to change Jonah's behavior and now he prepares a worm to change Jonah's attitude. Right? The first one was behavioral modification. God is the inventor of this. I have a brother who has a degree in psychology, and he used to write behavioral modification programs for people that had a bad habit or something. And so he would write a plan, and you put this into practice and do this and don't do that, and it could modify your behavior. Well, that's what the great fish did. It modified Jonah's behavior. I'm not running away anymore. And now I'm just going to sit and protest. I'm not going to run away and protest. And so God modified his behavior. Now God's going to modify his attitude. And so he takes supernatural action. The worm doesn't get the headlines that the whale does, does it? I mean, that seems insignificant, but I'm telling you, it is just as miraculous as the great fish. The fact that God made this plant pop up, that he sent this worm to kill it, and then he sends the wind to drive the heat down on Jonah. In the first act, God moved Jonah's body, and in the second, he moves Jonah's heart now I know when you read this and you say okay here's Jonah he's sitting outside the city and the King James calls it a gourd it's some sort of plant that that grows up that's tall enough has broad enough leaves uh you know and, and some sort of gourd type fruit that would come off of it to to provide shade for Jonah And if you're struggling to imagine how Jonah could be so emotionally attached to this gourd that when it dies, he he nearly has a a breakdown, then just pretend that he named it Wilson. (laughs) Like in the movie Castaway, right? I know half of y'all got all broken up when that worn-out volleyball fell off the raft in the ocean and Tom Hanks is out there about to drown yelling Wilson at an inanimate object and we're all like he hasn't seen anybody in so long he is attached to Wilson let me tell you something how you long you think it's been since Jonah's seen a friendly face I mean, this dude went running. He was in the belly of the well. It took him a while to get back to Nineveh. He said that God was going to judge it in 40 days. Now he goes out and sits outside the city to wait and see if God's going to judge it. Who knows how long he's been out there. But in this state of physical and emotional exhaustion, Jonah has latched on to that gourd. And by God's providential design, God uses it to show Jonah how he can care for and want to save the people of Nineveh. See, this is what Jonah wasn't getting. How could God do this? How could God love our enemies? How could God save those people? How could God not judge them for what they have done and what they are doing? I don't understand how God could do that. And God says, okay, I'll give you a little insight, Jonah. I'm going to let this gourd grow up, and you're going to appreciate it so much. Even though you didn't plant it, you didn't nurture it, you didn't do anything for it, it just popped up, and it's provided a service to you, and now all of a sudden you're remorseful 
when it perishes and withers away. And what God is teaching Jonah is that even though those Ninevites are wicked sinners, they are the creation of God and they still bear his image. They are image bearers of God. Here's the final insight into the heart of Jehovah. He doesn't want anyone to be far from him. God goes on to remind Jonah that there are over 120,000 innocent children in Nineveh. That's what it means when it says six score, six times 20, 120,000 uh, people who can't discern between their right hand and their left hand. He's talking about innocent children. And he's saying, Jonah, you're thinking about all the evil that has been done, and you're thinking about the perpetrators, and you want me just to rain fire down, you want me to annihilate this place, and you're not even thinking about the fact that there's 120,000 innocent children who didn't ask to be born as Ninevites, who didn't uh, choose who their parents would be, and that they are there, and they would be wiped out in this same destruction and you can feel sorry for a gourd that dies but I can't feel sorry about these children and want to spare them and draw them to myself and bring them near to me God wants us all to draw near and the good news is that through Christ we can draw near that's why it's called the gospel good news and that's why Jesus, before he left earth, he gave us this, this one great commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, those people don't deserve to be saved. Neither did you. Well, do you know what they have done and how they've treated other people? Yes, but do you know that God loves them and wants to save them? Don't you realize that there are innocent children being born every single day? And if we don't share the good news of the gospel with them, they will perish and go to hell. And so you and I need to have this insight into the heart of God so that we get on board with God's program. Although this story ends without a conclusion about Jonah... The implied conclusion is that Jonah got the point, right? It's one of those types of movies like I hate that tells you this whole elaborate story and then it doesn't conclude right. You're like, well, what happened? And you Google it and it's like, well, the director wanted you to decide what the ending was. <laughs> no, that's why I paid to watch a movie. You tell me the story and the whole story, right? That's kind of how Jonah ends. Well, what happened? Did Jonah die on the mountain outside of Nineveh? Is Jonah still angry till today? I mean, what's going on? The implied conclusion is that Jonah got the point because he wrote the story down. And he published it in Israel. He didn't have to tell anybody none of this stuff. Nobody knew what happened in the belly of that great fish. Only Jonah knew that. And so the implied conclusion is the fact that this thing was written down and published back in Israel is the fact that Jonah finally said, I got it, Lord. And I'm going to share my folly with other people so that they can get it. In fact, God preserved it in Scripture for us. I would say, furthermore, the conclusion is unwritten because it is your story. And it is my story. And only you can write the conclusion to your story. And so what's the conclusion going to be for you? Are you going to sit there in your feelings like Jonah, self-centered and hypocritical? Or are you going to gain some insight into the heart of God and say, you know what? 
Every life is precious. Every soul is a soul that needs to be saved, regardless of what their parentage has done, regardless of what they have done. My job is to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. We want the word of God to settle in our minds with the full weight. Allowing God to direct us as he did Jonah. What is it that God is speaking to you about? Have you gotten myoptic in your view of life? Do most of your prayers focus on you instead of God? My, me, I. Are you questioning God when you ought to be praising him? Are you accusing him? When you ought to be celebrating him. Perhaps you're in the shoes of Jonah. And you need to repent of that. Die to self. Take up the cross. Follow Christ. Maybe you're here today and. You know in your heart that you become indifferent about the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Oh, you're thankful that Jesus died for you and that you put your faith in him and that you're going to heaven when you die, but you don't really care enough to tell anybody else. God, help us. God, help us to get his heart to see each and every person as a soul that is bound for eternity. And without the intervention of the gospel, they will perish in the judgment of God. Heavenly Father, I do pray and ask that you would use the story of Jonah again in our day to transform us and to change us and to direct us in the path that you would have us to go. Lord, help us not to need a great fish or a little worm to change our hearts and minds, but may we be instructed by your word and by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would,